We are in the second week of a series called Known. And last week, if you were here and were blessed by uh, the worship services, you'll remember how uh, we often claim names uh, that aren't true about ourselves. And uh, we claim names that we uh, may have been given since we were kids that we didn't measure up or that we weren't our, our parents' favorite or, or uh, that we uh, just didn't do things as well as other people did or as we've grown older that we, well, uh, we may not account for much anymore. And as you've heard, well, you are awesomely and wonderfully made. That's what David says in the psalm, that we are awesomely and wonderfully made. And today we're going to read uh, the first five verses of Psalm 139. But before we do, let us go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that as the Scripture is read and proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you'd say to us this day. You know, the word of the Lord is found in Psalm 139, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, Pete, am I doing this right? Is that, yeah, yeah, okay. All right, just, just making sure. Yeah, yeah, I was told that was a move that the usual preacher here does after he takes his blessing. So I just did that for you, Pete. Yeah. Search the known. You know, growing up when I did, a song that was popular uh, was a song, I'll Be Watching You by the Police. And, and you all might remember that. And you might remember how Sting starts it out by saying, every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, what? I'll be watching you, right? I'll be, be watching you. And then he goes on in the bridge, oh, can't you see that you belong to me? Uh, every step you take away just breaks my heart. You remember that? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a song that Sting said, you know, I wrote it, I woke up one morning, I just started playing on the piano. And I came up with all these words. Now, if you listen to the words, you know, there's nothing too deep about it. You know, break, make, take, stake, you know, that, and, we, and I'll be watching you. You know, there, there's nothing too, too theologically significant about it. And, and said, but I just woke up and I knew it was going to be a hit. So he, he, he sang that song. And it's one of those songs that, you know, you've probably heard. I was going to ask the praise band to play it, but, I, you know, I, I didn't know how that would look, you know. So. Uh, but he began to think about this years later, and he said, you know, that song is kind of creepy. <laughs> you know, you think about this, someone watching everything that you do and saying that you belong to me. I mean, that, well, that can kind of seem creepy, can it? That, you know, someone's watching over you all the time. And in our day and time, when we have these things in our back pocket, uh, when we hear about Folks being worried about being tracked, well, yeah, you, people know where we are, right? People know exactly where we are. We know about our identity. If you 
have heard of somebody, you meet somebody, uh, you probably do this. You Facebook stalk, right? You, you go online to, to look at, see that, who that person is and what they're about. And what, or you hear the name, what they look like. You go and, and check those things out because, well, we're being watched. We're being, being noticed. It's amazing, isn't it? I, I, I was typing in online to find a, a vacation rental in, in Charleston. And it's amazing that my computer keeps telling me I need to go to Charleston. I mean, these ads pop up all the time, don't they? Hey, here's this deal in Charleston. Here's this thing you can go to in Charleston. How? I'm watching you. <laughs> that's, what, that's what's going on. It is interesting, isn't it, uh, that we live in a time when, when, well, so many people kind of spook that. We, we are being watched. And Psalm 39 starts out with this notion of, you can't escape the gaze of God. It's, it's a concept that we call theologically, if you want to get fancy, omniscience, omni meaning uh, all, meaning knowledge, all knowledge. God has all knowledge. God knows everything. God is aware of all the stuff that's going on, not only in the world, but in the universe. And there are some people, uh, when they think about that, they, well, they, they get this image that if you ever have a $1 bill, I know people aren't carrying cash anymore, but if you ever find a $1 bill, on the back of it, uh, there is this pyramid with this weird-looking eye on it. Some of you all remember that. You remember money. You remember cash. You remember that thing that is green. Well, on the back of that $1 bill is this thing. It's the eye of providence, and it kind of looks weird and creepy. And some folks, when they think about God, it, it's this distant eye looking at us, just seeing us from afar away. Of course, I'm in this service with Ben, so I've got to do my Lord of the Rings uh, quote. You know, it's the eye of Sauron, you know? you know. Those of you who are in the Lord of the Rings, you know that eye of Sauron. He sees everything. He knows what you're looking at. I mean, it's this distant eye, or maybe even the, the evil eye that knows what you are dealing with. And even in popular culture, we have that. Not too long after Sting saying, I'll be watching you, there's a song of Bette Midler saying, uh, God is watching us, what, from a distance, not involved with our lives, but seeing us from a distance, not personally caring about us. You know, even though we are being spookily watched by things on the internet, folks are Facebook tracking us and going on Instagram, seeing who we are, if you're into those things, we all want to be watched, don't we? Lovingly watched. Now, everyone knows what a redneck's last words are, don't you? Hey, y'all, watch this. You know, that, I mean, that, that's a... But we all want to be watched, don't we? Kids, when, they, when they're there at the pool, and I know you all do swim up here sometimes, and when you chop through the ice, but when a kid, when a kid is at swimming lessons and first learning to swim... Uh, hey, mama, daddy, watch this, watch this. When they're about to make that first jump in the pool, hey, watch this. Why? Because they want someone they love to take notice of them. When they go to the school play, you know, the, it, it was cute going to the Parkland school play the other night. There was, there was always one little kid that's going to wave at her mom, you know, that make sure that the kids, uh, the parents know that uh, there are kids there watching them. That kid wanted to know, mommy, I'm here, I'm here. Even when uh, we get a little older and when we're teenagers and we say, oh, gross, mom's here, in their hearts they're saying, I'm glad mom 
is here. I'm glad dad is here. They notice when the parent doesn't show up at the ball game, they're too busy or on their own business trips, and they miss out because, well, kids want to be noticed. We, we all want to be noticed. And I know we have some college students here, and when you go away from school, that's kind of scary because you worried that you're going to fall through the cracks. Someone's going to notice you. That's why you join uh, sororities and fraternities and take part in uh, great programs like the App Wesley Foundation. We, we want to be noticed by people. And as we get married, right? Because we want to be known. And one of the great fears in life as one gets older is that, well, no one notices us. We're lonely. We're lonely. You know, the society since the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, uh, the world has become a lonely place. In Great Britain, in the United Kingdom, they have uh, developed an agency for loneliness, a ministry of loneliness. It's become a governmental agent because it's become such a problem. And in our own nation, a recently established uh, hotline dialing 988 for mental health crises and for suicide prevention. And if you all are dealing with mental health issues, see somebody. Call somebody. But 988, it's been open about six months. It's had over two million calls. Because so many people feel alone and not noticed. Feel like no one is there lovingly looking at their lives. And now... We see the good news that David writes in Psalm 139. You have searched me and you have known me. Searched me and known me. Not uh, all uh, knowing God that looking at us from a distance. No, it's a God who is intimately involved with the lives of people. Knowing us. It's not, I love, I went to hear Dale speak at the earlier service, and if you want to hear a good sermon, you might want to go over there right now. But anyways, at, at the sanctuary service, Dale, Dale said this. He said, it, it's God isn't searching for us like someone who's lost their keys. Anyone who's lost keys or glasses, that's why I got a hundred pairs of these things around. You know, it's not like that. God searches us from this standpoint of already knowing where we are. Mining the depths of our souls. Mining the depths of our being. The biblical witness gives a testament to this. I love the call of Samuel in 1 Samuel 3. There's Samuel there uh, lying asleep in the temple. And he hears the voice being called, Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up and he thinks it's his, his stepfather, Eli, the priest. Happens three times. But he's... Not aware, you see, that this God that he thought was so distant is aware of who he is. And he calls by name, you see. Not some distant God not, that's not involved in our lives. No, he is right there. Jesus puts it this way. In, in John 10, he said, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Why? Because I call them by name name. And the biblical understanding of knowing somebody's name is that you know all about that person. That's why, you know, in ancient times, people are kind of hesitant to share their name because when you shared your name, that means you're sharing information about yourself. You're sharing who you are. 
I guess maybe in modern parlance is that you know, friending somebody on Facebook or getting to get to know somebody, giving them maybe even your social security number. You don't want to do that, obviously. But that's the, how intimate having a name was. You have searched me. You have known me. Knows us by name. That means knows what you're dealing with at this very hour. He, it says he knows my uh, lying down and my sitting, sitting up. It means that, that all the activities of your day, God is well aware of that. Think about your day. You know, you, what you're doing at work, God knows about that. God knows about when you're lying down at night. And it's a wonderful fact to know that when you're most vulnerable, when you're there asleep, when uh, you're there with your dog snoring next to you, God is aware of all that. There's nothing that escapes, not his far distant gaze, but his loving gaze, intimately involved with who you are, knowing who you are, caring about for who you are. It it says this in the psalm before, even... A word is on my tongue, thou knowest about it, O Lord. Now, the, the, the scriptures are replete with, with admonitions about guarding your tongue. You know, Proverbs uh, 10 says the fool does not watch over his tongue. In, in Proverbs 12, it says that uh, the, the, the tongue is like a sword to those who are reckless. And in the New Testament, in James, he said, you might think you're righteous, but if you don't control your tongue, you are not. So before we even say anything, God is aware of it. Those loving words that we say to our friends and our family, God's aware of those. But also God is aware of the fact that sometimes our words are not what they ought to be. When we go around and maybe, uh, well, talk about somebody, God is aware of that. You know, in... Deep South culture, I mean, I'm up here in the northern part of the South in North Carolina, but deep South culture, you know, it's okay to talk about people if you use the words bless their hearts afterwards, right? You know, I mean, that, 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 that's something uh, that, that we, we, we do down in Alabama. Now, I don't know if you do that in North Carolina, but Alabama, if you say bless their hearts, that makes it okay. No, not really. <laughs> but God is well aware of what we say. Can you imagine all of your words for the day going across on a teletype for everybody to see? Even those words that you mutter under your breath as you're driving along, seeing that guy that's cut in front of you has run that red light about to hit you. Yeah, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. I see lots of work, people going, oh my gosh. Yeah. All of them. And even more so, God is aware of our thoughts before we even thank them. What, what if your thoughts were projected on the screen up here? We'll be up there. I wish this preacher had quit so I can go to lunch. Yeah, okay, I get that, yeah. But what would be up there? Because God is aware, you know, before we utter words, it, it's a thought, right? It's something that's there. In my own mind, it'd be worry, fear, Concern about the future, what's going to become of my family. And interspersed some thoughts about Braves baseball and Auburn football. But, but my, you know, there, there's all sorts of things up there that don't have me focused in on God. But here is what David says. 
even though you know all of that stuff, even though you know that, uh, that I'm not the man I ought to be all the time, even though you know the fact that I've failed, even though you know about that Bathsheba thing, even though you know about the fact that when you uh, said, trust in me, I didn't trust in you, and so I declared a census so uh, that I would know how many men I have in my armies rather than trusting in you, you know about all that. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me, he says. Wow. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It hymns me in. I love our United Methodist doctrine of grace. And we believe in in this doctrine called provenient grace. That means it's a grace that goes on before us. Before a baby is born, it, there's grace surrounding that child. As that child grows up, that is surrounded by this grace, even when we're not aware of it, even when we are thinking things that we shouldn't be thinking, that we're surrounded by grace. When I was in, in school, in seminary, and I took a preaching class, and some of you all maybe have heard me talk about Fred Craddock, who was uh, at the time one of the ten top homileticians in, Amer- in the English-speaking world. I mean, I was blessed to sit under his feet for several classes. And, and we were, uh, had a chance to preach a sermon, and then he called us into his office, and he would analyze a sermon and, and talk about it. Now, I, I don't remember too much what he said about the sermon. That was, may have been the quality of the sermon. That's why I didn't remember too much of what he said about it. But I, it probably was, had to do something with grace. And when I said and done, I said, uh, Dr. Craddock, what... Tell me about this grace stuff, you know. What's your understanding of it? And being who Fred was, because he's gone on to be with the Lord, he told a story. He said, I was riding in the elevator one time uh, with a gentleman, and uh, we were there talking, and the elevator stopped, opened up the door, and in stepped John Ehrlichman. Now, for those of you that are too young to remember this, and I was really young when this happened, but uh, I do recall that name, John Ehrlichman. He was one of... Nixon's White House associates involved in the Watergate scandal and did a lot of uh, underhanded things that brought down the Nixon administration. He stepped on the elevator, and uh, Craddock's friend just turned the other way and didn't want to look at the guy, didn't want to look at John Ehrlichman. And, you know, a few floors later, the elevator opens up, and the guy walks, and John Ehrlichman walks off the elevator, and the elevator shuts, and Craddock's friend said, boy, there's somebody that doesn't deserve any grace. And Craddock said, well, my friend, you don't understand what grace is then, do you? And Fred stopped the story there and said, Dr. Craddock, <laughs> what do you mean by that? He said, Ed, it, grace is something that we just can't comprehend. It's too great for us, you see. It's too wondrous for us. Ed, if you're a fish, it's the water you swim in. If you are a bird, it's the air that upholds your wings. It is this reality that surrounds your life. Or as David says, it hymns me in. Grace hymns us in. Grace is what is there for us. Despite the fact that 
this Jesus, this God, knows all about us. When I think about Psalm 139 and this God that knows all about us and accepts us anyway, I I can't help but uh, think about the story uh, from John's Gospel in the fourth chapter where uh, Jesus is with his disciples there in Samaria. And now, I don't know what you would think about is the country you would least want to go to because you didn't like the people that much. Probably right now, thoughts going on in the world, you might say Russia. All right, imagine that to get to uh, Jerusalem from Galilee, you had to go through Russia. And, and there's people there that, you, you know, you're mad at and angry at and, and despise. That's how much the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. But it was a shortcut to get from Galilee to, to Jerusalem. So Jesus and the disciples go that way. And the disciples go into town to buy some food. And there Jesus is at a well just waiting, and this woman shows up at midday. Now, we know from our study of uh, cultures, and particularly ancient culture, that you didn't go to the well at midday to get water. Because the water would be a little hotter, a little less fresh. People went to the well in the morning to get the water for the day, to wash the dishes, to do the cooking, all those type things. This woman's there at midday. And she's surprised to see somebody waiting at the well. And Jesus speaks to her. An immediate sign that he is accepting her. And he begins to have a conversation with her about who she is. And, and she tries to change the subject about, about saying, well, you know, we worship over here. And what are you Jews doing here? And, and Jesus says, no, no, no. I, I, I know who you are. You're a woman that's been married four times and living with somebody right now. And that is why she is at the well at midday. The folks in the village know about that woman. And they know you are an adulteress. You're a loose woman. You're a woman not worthy of anything. But Jesus knows all that and says, I offer to you living water. Living water. Water that will give you life. And in her excitement, she runs to her friends in the village and and she says, come meet somebody who knows all about me. And though the text doesn't say this, it's implied and loves me and accepts me. We all want that, don't we? We all want that. We want someone to love us despite the fact that, well, we blow it. We want someone to love us and accept us because of who we are in God's sight. We want someone to love us and accept us despite the fact that that we may be addicted to something to hide the pain that's in our lives and hide the fact that we have the self-loathing. We want someone to love us and accept us even because of that, despite that, to bring us out of that. For you see, David longed for that. And he makes this great proclamation. Such news of you hemming me in. 
as you can put it this way, from another psalm he wrote, goodness and mercy, follow me all the days of my life. Goodness and mercy, they hem me in. Even though no, you know every bad word I've said, every evil thought I have thought, every deed that's uncharitable, you have done. You have loved me despite the fact the things that I have done. Wow. You know, we know the Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary that probably ever lived. I mean, there's great missionaries out there. Don't get me wrong. The, the Christian history is replete with great examples of that. But the Apostle Paul, you think about this. Uh, he went on three missionary journeys. If you read uh, 2 Corinthians 11, you see all the, the things that he endured, numerous beatings. Uh, he was stoned. He was shipwrecked. Uh, he was uh, persecuted because of his faith. And yet near the end of his life, he writes the book of Romans. And in the seventh chapter of Romans, he, he makes this proclamation. I do the things I don't want to do and the things I want to do, I don't. Who shall save me? from this body of sin and death. For you see, in an earlier letter, in 2 Corinthians, Paul makes this confession. I asked over and over again that uh, this thorn in the flesh should be removed from me. This, as he says, this messenger from Satan. And the response he gets back is this. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, no one knows what this thorn is. I mean, there's all sorts of speculation, everything from being nearsighted to, you know, having to deal with his own lustful thoughts. Who knows? But I have a feeling that this Romans 7's passage gives us a hint. He felt like he was unworthy. But when he surrendered himself to the worthiness of Christ, he was lifted up. For as uh, David Siemens says in a quote from this book, I think Vern maybe have already shared with you, I was child. You know, we, um, we have this enemy that tells us lies about ourselves, that whispers into our, our hearts that we are not worthy, that you know, we've blown it too many times, uh, that uh, we try to, to beat something that we've been dealing with, flying off the handle maybe, maybe uh, dealing with some some addiction that you are still struggling with day after day. And David Seaman says that's the greatest tool of the enemy to make us feel like we're so unworthy, to tie us up in knots. Even if we are fully aware of the fact that, we are, that we're sons and daughters of Jesus, he, he comes into us and says, you are not worthy. You're not really loved by God. You've got to do all this stuff to earn that love. No. You're loved because you're made. And that grace is sufficient. In our great Methodist tradition, we know that we have been blessed to be a part of a movement founded by John Wesley. And Wesley had this overwhelming heart 
rending and warming experience on May 24, 1738, where we, the famous quote is, my heart was strangely warmed. And he felt like that Christ indeed had died for his sins and his sins alone. And, and he felt so enthused about the faith and it launched the Methodist movement and launched him going out in all the world to proclaim the gospel. But less than a year later, he writes in his journal, I am not a Christian. How come? Because there was a voice whispering in his ear. You're not worthy. This isn't about you. Despicable fool that you are. How can you feel like you're accepted by the one who created the universe? And thank God, Wesley started digging into Scripture. And he came across this passage that became one of his favorites. 1 John 3.20. Though our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. My friends... When you're hearing the whisper of the evil one in your life, saying that you aren't worthy, you don't amount to much, that you, you, you've blown it again, hear this. You're hemmed in by unfailing love. That's never going to let you go. And the reason why I had been singing that jazzed-up version of this hymn that we call And Can It Be, it's 363 in the Methodist hymnal if you ever want to pull it out. Wesley, on his deathbed, said, read me Charles's poem about a Savior that died for me. And some of the last words he heard on this earth were this, no condemnation now I dread. I can now boldly stand before the throne. And that's why we have to know, friends, that we're surrounded by grace and to be invited to grow into that grace so that we can live this life confident in the fact that no matter what, you and I are surrounded by never-failing love, amazing love. How can it be that the king of the universe would die for me? But he did show you how much you're loved. Amen, amen, amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we believe the lies about ourselves so often. We, we've talked about that some last week. We, 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 we talk about how uh, the voices that the evil one uses to make us feel like we're less than worthy. Uh, that we don't measure up, that we may be too fat, that we are not talented enough, that we, uh, we may be too short or getting too old. Or, uh, Lord, the list is endless. But you have told us throughout Scripture that you care for us, you love us no matter what, and you have made us wonderfully and beautifully, fearfully and awesomely. Let us live into that truth, God, even when it's so hard feel the fact that we are hemmed in by your amazing love, that grace surrounds us no matter what, and that you call us to grow into that grace so that we can live more confidently, live more boldly. We can enable others, Father, to experience that grace as well. So, Father, let us go from this time of worship confident in your love for us. We ask this now in the name of the one who is that ultimate sign of love, the King of glory, Jesus Christ our Lord.
Amen, amen, and amen. Let us stand and worship.